My name is Scott Nye, and this is Talking Radical Radio. Hello and welcome to Talking Radical Radio, where we bring you grassroots voices from across Canada. We give you the chance to hear many different people that are facing many different struggles, talk about what they're doing, how they're doing it, and why they're doing it, in the belief that such listening is a crucial step in strengthening all of our efforts to change the world. On this week's show, I will be speaking with Andrew Cash. It should not be news to anybody that work jobs, and the economy have changed a lot over the last few decades. Lots of people were excluded from them even then, but at least during the post-Second World War economic boom, many people could at least aspire to the new and unprecedented layer of secure, regular, well-paying jobs with good benefits and a pension. Today, however, fewer and fewer such jobs exist. In the 21st century, jobs that fail to give access to security and prosperity are increasingly becoming the norm, though even within that, of course, there's a broad range of kinds of work, kinds of jobs, and intensities of marginalization and exploitation. Andrew Cash was a member of Parliament representing a riding in Toronto for the NDP from 2011 to 2015. Before that, though, he spent more than 25 years cobbling together a living in one corner of the broad umbrella that is precarious work, in his case in the arts and culture sector. In fact, it was an interest in getting meaningful government action around the needs of what he has come to think of as urban workers that initially inspired him to enter electoral politics. By that category, he means contract, freelance, and micro-self-employed workers, often in areas like arts, culture, and knowledge work, which includes things like freelance journalism, precarious academic labor, and much contract work in the not-for-profit sector. Though workers in these areas are often assumed to be middle class, the picture tends to be much more complex than the image of easy and stable economic well-being that we still often associate with that label. Even if wages and conditions for some of them are often better than in the more marginal forms of precarious work, urban workers still generally have no job security, no benefits, no access to sick days, no pension, no access to the protection of employment standards, and not even particularly good access to social programs should a crisis hit them or their family. As an MP, Cash tabled and worked to generate considerable community support for a multifaceted private member's bill that, had it passed, would have started the federal government down the path of addressing these issues. After losing his seat in the election last October, Cash decided that he couldn't just let these issues drop, and he and a small group of other urban workers launched the Urban Worker Project in March of 2016. It aims to animate and frame public conversations around the struggles of freelance contract and self-employed workers, to build community and a cohesive constituency of such workers, both online and through in-person events across the country, and to mobilize people in support of specific campaigns and demands. Cash talks with me about his own experiences of precarious work in the arts and culture sector, about the importance of doing more to protect and support workers in a radically changed world of work, and about the Urban Worker Project. We spoke by Skype to phone from Toronto. I'm Andrew Cash. I'm the co-founder of the Urban Worker Project, which is an initiative to raise the issues and the voices of freelancers, those who are working on short-term contracts, those who are the micro self-employed, if you will, people working multiple part-time jobs. 
In other words, people who generally can't count on any access to a workplace pension or you know health and dental benefits or any kind of job security. And generally, at least for our organization and others are working in other spaces on this issue, we are focused on folks who are working broadly in the arts and culture sector, in the not-for-profit sector, where there's actually quite a lot of precarious work, people working in the knowledge sector in general. I worked for almost 30 years as a freelancer. I've never had a conventional employer other than the government of Canada when I was an elected member of parliament. One of the reasons I got into electoral politics was to push the issues that not just I experienced, but those around me and certainly an overwhelming number of people that lived in the riding that I represented. And that is the shift away from permanent employment to contract employment to freelance. Stats Canada is consistently reporting that the largest job growth sector in the Canadian economy is self-employment. And when I was a freelancer, and by the way, I was a freelance journalist and musician and producer and performer, songwriter before politics, as sort of jack of all artistic trades. And when I was working like that, I many times longed to hear in the public debate about work, where especially those on the left and the NDP were always and rightly so fighting for the protection of the pensions that workers already had and the benefits and the job security that was always under threat. And I wanted to hear more in the public debate about all those workers that have never had a pension to begin with or never had any kind of access to you know, extended health benefits, no access to parental leave or compassionate leave or sick days, no bridge between one contract and the next when there's no income coming in. I wanted to hear in the public debate the issues of those workers being aired as well as those that were already deeply ensconced in that debate. That's the reason I ran. And I will tell you that, by and large, for a lot of these kinds of workers, one might make the assumption that, well, you know, they they all look kind of middle class and they're probably pretty stable. But increasingly, this sector of workers oftentimes behind that thin veneer of what looks like middle class stability can be a real precarious existence. All it takes is one bike accident to throw most of these folks below the poverty line. And I know from personal experience where in my family, we had one very significant family crisis where one of my young kids got very, very sick. And both myself and my wife, who's also an artist, had to stop work to tend to this crisis for quite some time and took us, I'd say, years to climb out of the debt that we incurred to deal with that crisis. And I bring this up not because I want people to feel sorry for me, but because that is just what happens when you are what I call an urban worker. You you don't have even the smallest thread of social security protection if life throws you a curveball or if you lose a job or if you can't get, you know, your next contract on time or if whoever you're contracted to do some work for decides he or she doesn't want to pay you on time or at all. There's no recourse. And I think we need to change this. During the course of the time I was a member of parliament and I was an MP from 2011 up until the fall of 2015, I tabled the first piece of federal legislation that was essentially a roadmap for the federal government to deal with the issue of precarious work. And from that bill, it was a fairly big kind of aspirational bill. We pulled out one part of it called the Intern Protection Act and was successful, actually, under that conservative majority government to move the conservatives to 
for the first time in the history of Canada, bring unpaid interns into the definition of an employee so that they too could access some of the basic workplace protections that other employees enjoy. When I started to really think about this in terms of trying to advocate around this issue, at the time, there wasn't really any kind of frame for this kind of work. No one was talking about it. Certainly, we were talking about, you know, low-wage workers and poverty and the fact that more and more workers were either unemployed or were working but not making enough money to make a living. So we were talking about that, but we weren't talking about this issue of this sector of atypical freelance on-contract self-employment work. And I thought that one of the things that we needed to do was start to build a definition of it and a frame. And in doing that, hopefully invite people to see themselves as part of a larger movement of workers that are by and large disconnected physically. I mean, you know, folks don't work in one central location, right? They don't have an HR department. They don't have mentors. They don't have a water cooler to collect around and they don't have a union to represent them. So I wanted to at least start to build a consciousness among people that work this way, that we are connected to each other, even if it looks like we may not have similar issues of concern. One of the powerful things about this issue is that it does link workers from different socioeconomic silos and builds connections through a common cause. And that common cause is no access to a pension or benefits or job security and no workplace protections. So why urban and why worker? Well, especially coming from the federal political culture, the interests of different regions have to be balanced out. And there's all sorts of complex calculations that go into that. But I was, and still am, although it is changing a bit, concerned about the fact that there were issues going on with work in urban centers that were not being addressed. And these issues are, to some degree, particular to urban centers. And I wanted to draw attention and be unabashedly talking about our cities, about the reality of work in urban centers. And I wanted to use the word worker because work has changed. Work has fundamentally changed. And our definitions and our cultural symbols around work need to change too. Our imagination of worker is someone that you know, lifts a big, huge, beastly hammer and smacks it down on some metal or something or works in a big factory or up on a crane or is digging ditches or building roads. Those are all workers. But so is, you know, the secretary and the late night office cleaner and the taxi driver and the journalist, the writer, the artist, the parent that's staying home looking after several kids. They're all workers, too. And I wanted to help with that narrative. I wanted to help contribute to redefining what work is because work is changing. It's changing dramatically. And I think our symbols have to change, too. Tell me about the actual founding of the Urban Worker Project. An election like the one we just had last October, at least for me, because I was really quite engaged in a number of real serious projects, and this one being the main one. What coming out on the wrong side of an election like that feels like is like you're in the middle of a really serious, passionate conversation with someone on your phone and the battery dies in mid-conversation. And there's no chance to recharge the battery and get back into the conversation. 
And so after that election, I took a hard look at, first of all, why did I get into this in the first place? What were the things that motivated me? What was most important to me? What were the things about those four and a half years that were the most meaningful? And then the question was, just because of those election results, does that mean that I need to stop working on the issue? The answer to that question was, maybe not. And so then I spent some months assessing, well, what would that look like? In what ways could I continue to contribute in a meaningful way to the debate around precarious work? Hence the project. I do want to say that the Urban Worker Project, I'm a co-founder. My other co-founder is Stephanie Nikitsis. So the first thing that we did was started to talk to other organizations and unions that are working in the space just to connect and to explore ways in which we could become allies. My sense was we could form some kind of an organization that was very complementary to some of the work that was already being done in certain corners of this issue. That was the first round of discussions. And I was never an MP that believed that you could just come up with a good idea, draft some legislation and table it in the House and that it could potentially move the needle on an issue. You have to build a consensus and you have to build a movement and you have to build a real buzz about an idea and an issue on the street. And I know that may sound obvious to listeners of your show, but in fact, it actually doesn't happen all that often <laughs> for a number of different reasons. I mean, some of it's just straight up resources. So prior to actually tabling the bill that I referred to earlier, which, by the way, is called the National Urban Worker Strategy. We had built a big constituency of supporters of the idea of building a new framework for work in order to ameliorate some of the issues of precarious work. So when we started to put the project together, we already knew, honestly, like hundreds of people who were engaged or were interested or were, in fact, struggling with this issue themselves that we could draw upon. And some of them are really excellent on-the-ground organizers. And I think many of them felt the same way after that election, that this was a really important issue. And it really does draw a really interesting cross-section of people to it. And many of them wanted to get involved. So that's when I think I knew that we could build something that could make a contribution to this issue. And what sorts of contributions do you hope that the Urban Worker Project will be able to make? One of the things around this sector of workers, people who are working freelance and on contract or who are solo or micro self-employed, is that they largely exist invisibly in our economy. And that even though they're growing and even though StatsCan, whose numbers are very general and we need better data from them on this, but even their numbers show that it's the largest growth area in terms of new jobs. But it's largely invisible. We have people who maybe flit in and out of conventional employment over the course of, let's say, a year. Someone could have, you know, four and a half months of maybe conventional employment, and maybe that isn't even full-time employment with a conventional employer. Sometimes they may be working on short-term contracts that they generate themselves, and sometimes they're working in, in a casual sense, maybe even under the table for people uh, in a pursuit of cobbling a living together. And so I think that one of the initial things that we can bring to the issue is to animate a conversation and try to help frame the issue in the public arena. That is step one. We need to get people talking about it. And it's not that they're not in. There are organizations out there that are also working to animate this conversation too. 
However, it's very easy to miss this group of workers, and I'll tell you how it's easy to miss this group. Let's say we're talking about sick days. There was some excellent work in the Toronto Star a couple months ago around this issue and how well over a million workers in Ontario do not get sick days. It's outrageous. But in fact, the numbers are much higher because those numbers don't account for all of the workers that we've been just talking about. The numbers of over a million workers that can't get a sick day, that's workers that are working for conventional employers who are not allowing this to happen for their workers. And so the solution for workers in conventional employment is one thing. I'm interested, and I'm interested in that, (laughs) absolutely. But the focus of the Urban Worker Project is to get at this trickier group of workers who also don't have any sick days, can never take a sick day. Because, first of all, there's really no conventional employer to bequeath a sick day upon them. (laughs) And their work context, the workplace culture, if you will, that they exist in, doesn't allow for it, doesn't take it into account at all. So I think that that's another way in which the project can contribute to our understanding and certainly policymakers' understanding of who is working in the workforce and what they need. So how the project is going to roll out Definitely part of it is contributing to the public debate around the new reality of work today. The second way is to build a constituency and a community of urban workers who can both see themselves as part of a broader workforce who share issues in common and be a space both online and in the real world, a space where people can connect and build community And then third, and really most importantly, move that community to participate in issue-based campaigns that can bring political changes that could actually make their lives and the lives of, in my sense, all workers better. And what are some of those potential issue-based campaigns? Well, they run the gamut and we didn't want to be prescriptive right out of the gate because I don't want to pretend that I know everything that urban workers need and want from an organization like this. So step two, which is the building a community and the building of a constituency and getting people talking to each other is the part that we're engaged in right now. But I can tell you that we have a campaign on our site right now, which is straight up focused on the workplace review that is going on in Ontario right now. And this is around changes that could bring greater fairness in the workplace for contract workers. And this is around things like getting paid on time, you know, getting paid, and also the misclassification of workers, which is happening more and more these days, where actually you're working on contract, but quite likely in some instances, you are probably legally an employee and not a contractor. And I think there's ways we can ensure that that happens less and less. So that's our first campaign out of the gate. But I think that what I anticipate down the road is significant work around the issue of how do we extend health and dental benefits to precarious workers who are in atypical employment. More and more, that's what we're hearing. Another one is around parental leave which is currently tied to your EI contributions. But if you are in atypical employment, you're not contributing to EI, or maybe you are sometimes because in the course of a year, you have some conventional employment, but it's never going to be enough. And the program that exists out there for self-employed, for example, it's called EI for the self-employed. It's a special benefits, not income security, but it is parental leave, but it isn't set up in any kind of a way that most urban workers can access it. 
so I think there's lots of work to do on that issue. And I suspect that that's something that folks who have signed up at our website and who are expressing interest in the project would like to see some movement on too. What kinds of approaches have you been using to connect with folks who do this kind of work and who might be interested in becoming part of your organization? Well, the short answer is initially we're organizing online. But if I could just back up for a second just to say that my experience as an organizer has always been much more analog, if you will, more about door knocking and getting you know petitions signed at events and that one-on-one interaction on issues. And in fact, that's a big way in which we got thousands of petition signatures for our Urban Worker National Strategy Bill. But one of the challenges with this broad sector of workers is that they don't work in a workplace altogether. They're not in a big company structure. They don't collect in one or two big physical spaces where they're all together, which would facilitate easier organizing, right? But the one place most of them do collect is online. And so that's where we are working right now. Essentially, when we launched, it was really launching a website and a Facebook page. And of course, we did a media launch. And so we're working right now with the first, you know, 3,000 folks that signed up at our website to encourage and ask them to help the project grow by inviting their own networks to come and check it out and get involved and sign up at our site. At the same time, we're going to start holding public events. Some of them are just going to be social things, just to bring people together. And maybe we'll have a bit of information and ways in which people can get involved in building a movement for change here. And the plan on that end is to start doing these live events right across the country so that we have a mix of both online organizing and live events that help to animate discussion, bring people together, build community and get people seeing themselves as part of a bigger work reality. So you mentioned that there are other organizations and other groups that are also doing work in this broad area. Tell me a bit about that landscape and about that work. There are unions that are in the space for sure, like the Canadian Freelance Union, which is a community chapter of Unifor, is doing some excellent work. The Canadian Media Guild is also organizing different workers. OPSU and QP are both in the colleges and universities sector where there is like a tidal wave of precarious work that I think is shocking. There's groups like the uh, Workers Action Centre, which are doing some excellent work, working largely with some of the lowest of the low paid precarious workers in Ontario. And they've been doing phenomenal work and are great organizers of the 15 and Fairness campaign. Some of the folks that would connect to the Urban Worker Project, there could also be an intersection with some of these other groups. So you could be a part-time worker working at a grocery store and potentially be even a member of UFCW because they're organizing in that space. But you're a part-time and you're not getting enough hours to really make a full-time thing. And you're doing other freelance work. You're doing contract work. I see a lot of intersection there and some of these groups. I think there's a lot of ways in which we're doing complementary work. And then around the issue of actual services, 
this early days, but I will say that I'm sensing a real willingness among some actors in both the private and the public sector and among labor to find solutions for the issue of the lack of health and dental benefits for so many people and for so many workers. So in the conversations that you've had so far as part of the Urban Worker Project, have you run into situations where people whose activities fit the definition of an urban worker that you sketched out earlier in the interview, but who, because of inherited stereotypes and so on about work and workers, are resistant to the idea of identifying themselves as a worker? That's a great question. It's so interesting, eh? Uh, how we see the work that we do and how work has been defined. And sometimes in that definition, you get defined out of the definition. <laughs> You're sort of written out of it if you don't fit a certain kind of historic understanding of who a worker is. The predominant type of work that workers have done for centuries have been manual labor. And that's only really just recently started to change, in fact, certainly here in Western economies, I should say. One of the things that I'm really excited about is that conversation. I'm from the arts and culture sector where I have witnessed so many people who work so hard at what they do. And I think that there's room in our cultural understanding of work to celebrate that work. But to your question, do I get resistance from people who are actually doing this work to be called a worker? I don't know. It's early to say. I'm not going to pretend that it doesn't challenge some people, I think. But it challenges people on both ends of that conversation. But more than anything else, I want to challenge policymakers' ideas about what work is. Because we built a very functioning social safety net in the post-war era that was predicated on people having full-time jobs, working for companies or in the public sector for one's entire work career, and then afterwards retiring with a pension that saw those workers live out their retirement in dignity. That's what our social safety net is predicated on, CPP, EI, and that's all changed. And a new type of social safety net has to be conjured. And I'm hopeful that it will be. But none of this happens just out of the ether. We got to work at it. We got to push for it. We got to argue for it. We got to organize around it. And people are doing that. And this project is part of that movement. You have been listening to my interview with Andrew Cash, former member of parliament and co founder of the Urban Worker Project. To learn more about the project, go to urbanworker.ca. That's urbanworker.ca. To find out more about Talking Radical Radio, the guests, the theme music, and the ways that you can listen, or to suggest topics for future shows, go to talkingradical.ca and click on the link for the radio show. On the site, you can sign up for email updates or follow us on Facebook or Twitter. I'm your host, Scott Nye, a writer and media producer based in Hamilton, Ontario, and the author of two books of Canadian history told through the stories of activists, Gender and Sexuality, and Resisting the State, both from Fernwood Publishing. Thank you very much for listening, and I hope you tune in again next week. <laughs>